Hey there, folks. This is The Daily Marketer, your weekly dose of growth marketing knowledge for the busy founder or startup marketer. I'd like to start off this episode with a quote. In a crowded marketplace, fitting in is a failure. In a busy marketplace, not standing out is the same as being invisible. And that is by Seth Godin. For this season, season two, we're doing something special. We're bringing on people who are founders of companies or who are at the helm of the growth of larger startups, and we're getting inside their brain, diving deep, and understanding their growth marketing journey. We're also bringing on people who are experts in subsectors of marketing. Think affiliate marketing, social media marketing. Uh, search engine optimization, and a couple different other subjects where sucking that information out of their brain, diving deep, and bringing that information to you here on The Daily Marketer. So who do we have on the show today? Alex Goldenberg. Alex Goldenberg is the founder and CEO of AG Consulting Partners, an established Northwest business management consulting agency based here in the Northwest. After working at Accenture for 12 years, developing an expertise in marketing, sales, and business process outsourcing, he left to begin his own consulting practice in the hotbed of the 2009 recession. However, very, very quickly, he was able to build a client base and bootstrap the company operating from his kitchen table for the first six months. Given its immediate success, he was able to convince, convince his future co-founder, Michael Gringos, to join him. Over the course of 11 years, they've step-grown the firm from two people to over 60 full-time employees operating 100% remotely until recently, and they've leaned heavily into the firm consulting business model. Michael holds a bachelor's in international economics from Georgetown and an MBA from the University of Washington Foster School of Business, while holding advisory roles at the UW Center for Sales and UW Employer Advisory Board. This conversation was really enjoyable and outside of my normal comfort zone, diving into a field I'm not too familiar with, management consulting. We dive deep into the growth of a consultancy and the hundreds of decisions Alex made along the way. Should he write a business plan? Should, you know, what should his product offering be? What should be the business model? Should they hire contractors? Should they get new clients? Should they, you know, how do they retain their current clients? How do you hire awesome undiscovered talent? We're going to get into all of it. If you had to ask me who is this episode available for, I would say it's for anyone who's considered starting a freelance business or a consulting firm. Consulting firms are famous for having high margin business models. Virtually anyone can start one if you do have a laptop, a phone, and some area of expertise that can provide value or an unmet need to a niche audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I did also want to mention that at the end of this show, if you liked it, please hit the subscribe button, leave a comment or review. Uh, You will automatically be entered into a raffle if you subscribe for a $50 Amazon gift card, which we'll announce every other week. So make sure you smash that button if you like the show. All right, please enjoy this episode with Alex Goldenberg. Hey, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, so 
I'm I'm really pumped to have you on the show. I did a good amount of research on you and actually got to research the actual inception of a a management consulting company. And so so we'll talk more about that and and the actual growth of your company and maybe the the growth of a a consulting company uh, in in theory. But I'd like to start off with something we call rapid growth questions, uh, similar to rapid fire questions. So if you're ready, we'll, we'll, we'll start with that. Ready when you are. All right. Greatest marketer ever, and it doesn't have to be someone who's a who's a direct marketer. They could be an indirect marketer. I think in recent memory, definitely Steve Jobs. Okay, marketing newsletter or newsletter you read a lot. I think there's a number of internal uh, newsletters that I get from my clients, like Microsoft, that uh, I pay special attention to, kind of focusing on their business. Great, marketing Twitter or Twitter influencer you follow often. Ooh, that's uh, I, I follow, kind of I follow a number of them, but it, it's I think it's mostly brands than actual individuals. As I mentioned, I think Apple is probably one of the one of the best brands that I've followed in a while. I think Microsoft is getting there. I'm mostly focusing kind of on high tech clients, but I I kind of follow more at the brand level than individual level. Okay, so so Apple brand. Any other brands? Yeah. I think Microsoft Microsoft is getting there. I think on the fashion side, I also like some of the high end fashion brands like Louis Vuitton and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know Gucci and, and so forth because I think they kind of set the trends in their markets. Mm. Uh, so, yep, very interesting. Okay, best marketing book of all time, and this can be an indirect book as well. I think that's that's, that's also a good one. I think uh, once again, I have to kind of go back to Steve Jobs' autobiography. I think. Uh, kind of understanding how his mind worked, how he perceived a uh, customer need and kind of formed his company around delivering for that customer need is just fascinating to me. Yeah. I, I thought that book was really inspiring. That's by Walter Isaacson, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, best TED talk. Uh, uh, Sheryl Sandberg was pretty good for, for mm-hmm. Facebook. I, I've, I've really enjoyed hers, and uh, there's a number of others as well. But I think that one that, that comes to mind. What was her her talk about? Uh, I, I think just around uh, respons- kind of social responsibility of social media companies. I think that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then last one: What marketing advice do you give that few follow? I think it's just being authentic. I, I think lately uh, a lot of people feel the need to conform and adjust to the latest trends. I think being authentic and really knowing your customer base is probably mm-hmm. the best long-term advice you can give somebody. Excellent. Okay, great. So I, I, I wonder if we could uh, talk now about, maybe you could tell me the story about how uh, your, your family came here from Ukraine. I, I think that's a pretty interesting story and, and actually a story that I can personally relate to with, with my parents. Uh, could, could we hear more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so back in 1989, and I think if you're, you're familiar with history, you know, the Eastern Bloc uh, was falling apart. Communism was uh, on the retreat. And with that came a lot of changes, some positive, some not so much. You know, the country was... Uh, the former Soviet Union was kind of falling apart. It was a state of chaos, and my family decided that it was time to to leave because, yeah, being Jewish and uh, you know, we were, there are certain elements that uh, were not very hospitable to us. So, uh, fortunately, we were able to come to this country. Uh, I came here at the age of thirteen and kind of able to start fresh and take advantage of all the opportunities that this country had to offer. Right. So, 
I don't know, it may sound a little grandiose, but, you know, I feel like I'm one of the embodiments of the American dream where you can come mm-hmm. here with virtually nothing and just, you know, work hard. Yeah. And do the right thing. You know, doesn't mean you'll succeed all the time, but, you know, you keep trying and trying and trying and eventually you'll, you'll get to a good place. I agree. And so what year was that when you and your family left Ukraine? We we left in September of 1989 and got to the U.S. Uh, in December of that year. Uh, our journey took us through a couple of European countries where we had layovers while we were waiting for all the paperwork to come to the U.S. So we lived in Austria for a bit and Italy. And then finally, right around Christmas time uh, in December of 89, we landed in Seattle. And 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 why why Seattle of all places? Maybe you wanted to definitely be in the U.S., but w- why the corn the Northwest? We just had the the only people we knew in the U.S. at the time were uh, family friends who lived in Seattle, so they were the ones who kind of invited us over and helped us settle. So that was the only place we could go. And what what did your parents do? Were they also entrepreneurs like yourself? No, they actually both of them were engineers. My dad, uh, they're both retired now, but my dad was a structural engineer and my uh, mom was a civil engineer. And they both, uh, you know, found jobs here and worked till recently and they retired about five years ago. Very cool. What what influence did uh, leaving, and it was Kiev, is that right? Uh, no, it was Western Ukraine, a small city called Chernovtsi, but it was right on the border with uh, Romania. Okay. So... It's a smaller town, maybe less than a hundred thousand people. Yeah, it was about about three hundred thousand people. So yeah, it was a probably a small city. Yeah. What? What? And how old were you when in nineteen eighty nine when you all left? We left a couple of weeks after my after my thirteenth birthday. Thirteenth birthday. Okay. Wow. That's yeah. That's a, a t- turning point of an age, right? That's that's for sure. Yeah. A lot. Of... What uh? Well, what influence did uh? Did your upbringing, uh, the, the move have on ultimately what you you did professionally? Well, I, I think it uh, taught me a few things. I think it, uh, you know, it taught me that there's no real sense of security. Uh, you know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people who work for large companies feel like, you know, mm-hmm. and I did as well at some point when I was working for Accenture, is, you know, you work for a large firm, you have security. At any point, you know, life can take a turn and that can be taken away from you. So, I think a lot of people are fearful of being entrepreneurial for that particular reason because they, you know, they want security. Well, I think the true security is is the one you can build for yourself by working hard, you know, trying hard, establishing a firm, and then building it up with financial independence. That's what will truly give you your security. So, watching my parents kind of leave everything behind and start from scratch, you know, you, once you go through that, no entrepreneurial failure will scare you. Yeah. As you know, you can always kind of get up, uh, dust yourself off, and start again. Yeah, if you can, yeah, if you can, yeah, if you come to a new country with no language, no money, uh, and just through hard work and step by step, kind of progress and build your dream, you can really do anything else in life. There's no excuses. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, you, you talked about there's 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 no security. I I think there's always great reminders of that uh even in in america you know recently with with covid19 there's no security in you know the market the good times always going there's there could be things that you could never foresee uh and then also back in 2008 with the with the mortgage bubble uh that that seemed like a really great example of there's there's also no security and you know 
sometimes it is better if you choose yourself or choose your own path versus uh, thinking maybe you could work for the same company for 30 or 40 years and, and everything would just be fine that way, right? Yeah, but then you're, once again, you were dependent on somebody else and their goodwill. And right. as I said, the, the, the best form of security, I think, in this country, I believe, is you just have to be financially independent. And one of the few ways you can get there is by being entrepreneurial and really delivering something to, to your customers that you know, will, will grant you that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, your your company specializes in. Uh, there's really three areas. One of them being uh, outsource management. The other being uh, customer experience, and the third being business process outsourcing. I wonder if you could explain for us. So, what is management consulting, and how is it different from other categories of consulting? Yeah. So we're really. I, I think. Terminology is important, but the yeah. way we define things, uh, you know, in terms of practice areas, are is threefold. One, you know, we do three things. We do management consulting, which sometimes called strategy work. That's about ten percent of our business. Then we do program and project management, which is about half of our work, and then the remainder, forty-five or so percent, is business process outsourcing. And the way we define those is so. If you think about management consulting or strategy work, that's typically shorter higher intensity projects that last about six or 12 weeks. This is where the customer has a very specific problem. And by the way, all, all of these uh, practice areas really focus on, on, on sales and marketing areas. So on the strategy side, a customer may have a particular hypothesis or a problem they're trying to solve that requires us to go off, do primary and secondary research, analyze the data we get out of that, and come back with a set of recommendations. A good example would be, uh, you know, we had a customer who or the client who wanted to change the technical benefits for their partner channel but before they pulled the trigger and really impacted thousands of partners they wanted to test the water so we went out we talked to a subset of the partners uh proposed discussed the proposed changes identified issues or potential issues came back with analysis and made certain tweaks and recommendations to our client who was able to prevent some of these issues by engaging us in that project so that to me, that, so that is kind of what we do from a strategy perspective. You know, lots of research, lots of analysis, come back with a recommendation, either prove or disprove a hypothesis. On the program and project management side, it's it's typically non-technical, either project or program management, and it could be you know one-off staff augmentation type arrangement, or it could be a team of four to five uh, PMs working in con- uh, concert to support a particular team. But usually it helps the client either launch or run a marketing initiative or a program. So it's either helping them go from strategy all the way to implementation. And then oftentimes they stick around and actually help do the run and continuous improvement. And then on the business process outsourcing side is really taking a non-technical function like data analysis or customer calls and taking it over for for the client. To a point where they don't really care how many bodies are doing it, they just care about the outcomes. So how many transactions, how many calls can you place mm-hmm. today, how many transactions can you analyze per day? So we do that work as well. But all of them focus around various sales and marketing initiatives that our clients are engaged in. And, and how did sales and marketing around those initiatives, how did that become more of a focus here for, for, for AG Consulting? Well, I, I think for that you kind of have to go back to the history because it all started 11 years ago with just me. And in my background was, you know, when I, you know, prior to starting the firm in 2009, I spent about a dozen years at Accenture. 
actually when I started was still Anderson Consulting and then it transformed into Accenture. And I had a journey within that company. When I started, I was part of their process practice. So I actually was working on Y2K testing back in 98, hmm. 99. But over the over my years at Accenture and kind of moving from the DC office to Seattle and being assigned to the Microsoft account, you know, I got staffed in a couple of marketing projects and then kind of took off from there. I started developing expertise around channel, channel strategy, sales and marketing effectiveness, uh, and ended up transferring from process into strategy practice there. So by the time I left Accenture, I was responsible for a lot of the sales and marketing work that they were doing uh, on the Microsoft account. Uh, I was part of the accounting there. So that was my personal expertise. So when I decided to start the firm, it was just me. And naturally, that's the type of work I was doing. And as we were kind of building out the company over the past 11 years, we're now at about 65 consultants. You know, that's that's the area we decided to focus on. And given your your experience, subject matter expertise uh, in that, it, it, it felt natural to, to go in that direction? Yeah, and it kind of happened organically because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the way we at least initially sold work was through kind of land and expand where we would get a project, do a really good job, and the clients or adjacent client teams would come to us saying, do you have more of this person? It'll be, and that's how we would actually build additional, build out additional projects, staff additional folks. So it was all organic and naturally because we were doing work in the sales and marketing area, and that's that was our background, our expertise, that's how it came about in a very natural and organic way. Awesome. So, so you mentioned the the age of your company and the size of your company in terms of number of employees. So you said sixty five, and it's it's been about eleven years. If you could draw the growth of your company over the past eleven years on a graph, uh, what would the shape? What shape would it take? And the, this could be in terms of number of people. It's it can, whatever you want to take it. It could be revenue, but mentally out loud, how would you draw that? Uh, well. And I always talk about this. So uh, consulting firms typically grow, grow in plateaus, right? So it would look mm-hmm. like a ladder, like okay. a ladder, right? So it's, you know, initially it was just me, and then it was a couple of folks for a while. Then we got to about ten people, ten to fifteen people plateau. And then as you grow, you actually build out the infrastructure underneath to support that growth, right? Because yeah, uh, the amount of back office processes and tools and systems that we have now obviously that we didn't have in place when we were at five people right so you almost have to you know get to a certain point then build out the back end or the infrastructure for the next phase of growth and then you get there and then it starts all over again so it's, it's almost like a step-by-step um process i think the important part also is not just the back office which you know which you have to build out but you also have to make sure you don't depart from your culture because it's really easy in this uh in in this area to to, to grow too fast for two reasons one you, you could lose your culture because you would just you were just trying to staff as many people as you possibly can and you compromise on principles you compromise on culture and you kind of start rotting from within I think the other part is your ability to sustain, right? Because it's really easy to luck into one large project, staff it up, and then not be able to find roles for, for these folks mm. once the project's over. Yeah. So we keep talking about deliberate growth, where we take on the specific type of work, the type of work that's repeatable, the type of work we can staff for without compromising our culture and our and our principles and uh, make sure that we can support the majority of these folks 
if and when that project ends. So that's why we've, you know, over the 11 years, we've only grown to about 65 people, but we were able to maintain that growth without ever taking a step back. Yeah, through, through that deliberate growth. Yes, because we have never, we, we don't really shrink. We grow at a slower, but slow and steady pace, but it allows us to maintain our top folks, find other projects for them, you know, keep the culture solid, keep, the, keep our principles intact, and serve our clients the way we want to serve our clients. So it's, uh, that, that's kind of been our journey. Yeah, I imagine culture fit is, is really important when you are considering considering any hiring anyone or bringing on any more consultants, huh? It, it, it's big, it, it's always been important. I mean, part of the yeah. reason why I started my own company is because I, you know what I realized is we all spend so much time in our workplace. You know, I I think it's fair to say I spend more time with my work colleagues, at least waking time, than I do with my family yeah. in the week, right? Yeah. So if you're going to do that and it's going to be such a big part of your life, you might as well work with the people you enjoy. And one of the best pieces of advice I got over the years is, you know, 10 years from now, you're going to forget the project you're working on, all the details around the, the day-to-day stresses, but you're going to remember how the people on that project made you feel. Uh, so it's important to surround yourself with folks that you actually enjoy working with. Uh, otherwise, it's just, you know, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, people you're excited to work with. Uh, th- there's a podcast, it's called, uh, let's see, Start- Starting Greatness. It's with Mike Maples Jr. And each each episode's 30 minutes long. One of them is a... a great culture, great talent, finding great talent. And his, his piece of advice is always have a awesome undiscovered uh, talent list. Like always be keeping that in your back pocket. Is that something that, that you personally keep in mind? If, if you're always, you know, thinking about deliberate growth, maybe you have people that you're thinking about, Oh, you know, I met this person. I'm, I'm sure you network often. Maybe they uh, land absolutely. on your list. Right. Absolutely. And, and actually a large source of that list is our existing folks because uh, in our recruiting over the years, internal referrals have played a major part. I think one, pe- people are unlikely to recommend somebody that's because they know the culture, right? So they're unlikely yeah. to recommend somebody that it's not going to be a culture fit and that somebody that's not going to perform because obviously it will reflect on them since they brought them into the firm. So th- that's been... Uh, one of our growth engines is our people because, you know, bring in like-minded folks yeah. that are going to perform and fit into the culture. But yeah, as you said, you know, we network, we go out and we talk to folks. We always have that list of folks that, hey, it may not be the right time. Because in consulting, it's all about the right person, the right project, the right timing, right? So, you know, you may meet somebody and it may not be the right time for them either to leave their existing job yeah. or you might not have the right project for them but you keep those connections going it's all about relationships right you keep it and then there's always the right time that comes when you least expect it where you can pull the trigger and kind of make it happen and we've, we've done it a number of times right so i always say it's all about relationships whether it's with your clients with your people with your potential recruits right uh projects come and go you know specific client you know engagements come and go but long-term relationships with folks that's what that's what sticks right yeah it's it's like building a well uh you you know you don't build a well when you're thirsty you build a well for when you're going to be thirsty because you definitely will right absolutely and i always tell stories i have clients that you know 
haven't bought stuff, you know, projects for me for 10 years. And then we've kept in touch. We actually developed a friendship and, you know, and sooner or later the phone rings when they have a need, right? So it's, it's not about, you know, just the immediate transactions about building that trust and relationship over the years and they'll come to you when they need you, right? So keeping those lines of communication open and just doing the right thing by them, right? Because anybody can get luck into a project, you know, you can always be at the right place at the right time. It's kind of like a winning lottery. But having clients that, that sit by you for, for decades and, uh, you know, even though it not may, may not be a continuous relationship, you know, very few people can accomplish that. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and doing great work in the process, right? I, they, they, they recognize that and they, they go, you know, we, we, I want to work with you again. Or, Hey, I remember you did that thing with us five or 10 years ago. You know, I have something similar. Let's like, let's talk. Right. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you, we don't, you don't have the luxury of doing bad work as a small company. Right. I mean, we're, we're not the, the KPMGs, the Accentures, the Deloitte's of the world where the brand can, you know, can withstand one or two bad projects. Yeah. Yeah. When you're 50, 60 people, you know, you do one bad project, you're pretty much done because the mm. word spreads, it's your reputation, right? So it's, you know, and not to say that certain things, you know, things go south once in a while. We're all human, people all make mistakes. But it's also how you respond to it because even if Roger goes south, there's always an opportunity to make it right for the client, right? Over the 11 years, we've had a handful of experiences where, you know, things didn't go, you know, as originally planned. But our ability to step in and do the right thing and make it right is what goes a long way, right? Because you can, it's unlikely that anybody's going to be perfect. But one, you can strive for it. And two, you can always course correct and do the right things when things don't go right. And yeah. uh, that, that, that's the nice thing about being a small firm is you, you have that flexibility. Yeah. You can, make, you can make certain things uh, happen for your client that it's harder to do in a larger, larger firm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's the David and Goliath. You, you can be the David. You can have incredible follow-up, even if, you know, maybe something didn't work out as, as planned in the, in the original intent. Yes. Uh, so I did some research about different consulting business models, and uh, you know, it looked like there was correct me if I'm wrong. Three different business models that often are followed. There's the the firm model, which is hire consultants to deliver a project. Maybe you bill hourly or per project, and as you know, maybe the firm's owner. Uh, there's there's a there's a margin that creates the the, the profit for the company. So essentially, the more projects uh, that come on, the more consultants that could be hired if if there's uh, uh, consultants to fill that work, and then potentially there'd be more profit or revenue generated. Uh, the second one is a more productized consulting model. So that's uh, where you could pack your expertise into products and stick a fixed price on it. Uh, and there's not, you know, maybe it's it's more of a kind of a more digital marketing sales approach to that, um, less of a sales pitching approach. And then finally, there's the customized consulting model, which is common for solo consultants or maybe people just starting out as freelancers where they might wear many hats uh, at one time. And they might feel overwhelmed in the process. So I, I, g- given that context, maybe could you tell us about the early days of uh, AG Consulting Partners and kind of, kind of what, what was the grassroots of starting your company? Yeah, so uh, the grassroots really started with uh, the financial crisis. So around 2009, uh, a lot of things kind of came to head. I was a senior manager on the verge of making partner at, a, you know, at Accenture. Uh, the economy was going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, a 
Accenture was evolving uh, as well. It was going, you know, it was making the transition from a public, a private company into a public company focused mm-hmm. on outsourcing and the type of work I was doing, sales and marketing work, wasn't very prevalent. So there was a lot of factors to consider. And I remember there was a turning point where I went through kind of a road to partner class that they put on for senior managers. And I came out of that and I was like, I don't know if that's what I want to do long term. Hmm. Because I wasn't doing large outsourcing IT deals and kind of where I saw where the firm was going, which was a great direction. I mean, they've had tremendous success and they've grown enormously, but it was just wasn't the area that I was passionate about. Uh, and also at the time, the, the partner I used to work for left the firm as well. So there's a lot of change. And there was this opportunity to just, you know, take some time, take the package and move on. And I said, look, uh, that, and at that point, I was working for 15 years. I you know, did my MBA. I was at a point where I needed to recharge. So I took a break and I thought I was going to take a year off. I was getting married at the time. But what ended up happening was I uh, got picked up by a local consulting firm uh, that was trying to recruit me while I was still at Accenture. And they offered me to build up a management consulting practice for them because they've been doing a lot of technical consulting, but wanted to expand into strategy. And through them, I realized a couple of things. One is I could sell outside Accenture. My client relationship was strong enough where people didn't really care about the brand. Mm. They trusted me and they didn't care which name was on the statement of work. Secondly, I met uh, a couple of folks that later, you know, were one of my first consultants. And lastly, I realized that I don't want to work for anybody else ever again, (laughs) unless I absolutely had to. So after three months with them, I just said, look, thank you guys, but you know, I really want to go to go my own way because I didn't want to build somebody else's business anymore. And I realized that the relationships I built over the past 12 to 15 years were, they were my relationships. I didn't need another brand to service them. So, uh, in August of 2009, I opened up, you know, the story I always tell, it literally cost me $200 in a, in a laptop to start the business. And the $200 was for business licensing and a laptop to, to get going. And that was it. Uh, and, over, you know, and as I said, you know, I got myself billable. The day we opened our doors, you know, I already had a signed contract um, in place. So it was a very kind of a bootstrap story. Didn't have to go into debt. It was, you know, really cash model. And at first I was taking multiple projects, as you said, you know, in, in your third model, you know, you yeah. wear multiple hats. You know, at times I was writing two, three projects at a time. I was selling on the side. I was also trying on the weekends. I was working with uh, uh, my wife, who was an office manager for a um, local IT firm uh, in helping me figure out all the compliance and state regulations and setting up the website and creating a logo and business cards. So I was wearing multiple hats. Uh, and then unfortunately, about six months into it, I, uh, uh, one of my childhood friends who I previously brought into Accenture from his career over in, uh, over at Blue Cross. Uh, so he was at Accenture for five years and I convinced him to six months into my endeavor to leave and join me. And we've been on that road for the past 10 years. Right. And that was Michael. Uh, that was Michael. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know. He took a leap of faith because uh, he had a family, you know, he had a young family at the time, two kids, mm-hmm. and you know, back to the point about security, right? You know, we had a number of conversations, and you know, he took a leap of faith, and we've been together f- as business partners for over ten years now. That's incredible. And so, so this, this is going to sound like a silly question. So, AG Consulting 
partners. That means that stands for Alex Goldenberg. Yeah. And literally the story behind that is I needed something to just get started. And I called Michael, who was still working at Accenture at the time. I was like, I need a name. What do you uh, think? And, and he's like, yeah, just come up with whatever, uh, you know, because, uh, and we kind of looked at some of the, f- you know, historically famous consulting firms uh, of the past, you know, KPMG, Arthur Anderson, all those firms were named after the founders. So some, you know, AG sounds like a good placeholder. I remember something from a marketing class where it's always good to start a company, you know, when you start a company to have a, have it start with an A. Because old shop hmm. person. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Right? yeah, right. White pages, yeah. So I, it was always supposed to be a placeholder name until we came up with something better. And I guess we never did. I like the name. I, I, I think it's, it's really memorable. And I, I don't know, there's something about the, the aesthetic of A and G that works, at, at least maybe the font, the type that you've picked. Yeah. And I think over the years as well, I mean, you know, the, the, this company is kind of a labor of love. I mean, this, there's the amount of work and effort that both of us have put into it. And at the end of the day, everything we do, I feel like it literally and figuratively has my name associated with it, right? Right. The good, the bad, the ugly, right? Yeah. Uh, so having the firm, and now I kind of understand why some of the other firms, you, in, you know, if you look at professional services industry in general, whether it's a medical practice, a legal practice, or, you know, a, a consulting firm, a lot of them are named after the founders. And now I understand why, because it's not just about the work. It's also about the culture and yeah. the spirit of the firm. And, and that has to embody its founders. Because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people can project manage well. The question, the difference a lot of times is not in the skill set, but it's in how they go about doing their work, how they treat their people, how they treat their clients. What do they do when things go south, right? It's not about necessarily the, the, the technical expertise of the subject matter. It's about the spirit and the culture that goes along with having, you know, a separate business. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. So, so there's there's the, that piece of wisdom. They say that the culture of a company takes on the personality of its founders. But I think the why behind that is indicative in some way of how the name of the company is is connected to you as a person, as in it's a, it's a reflection of what you believe and value and how you think a business should be ran is then ends up somewhat actually being the culture and personality of the company, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day, you as an owner are associated with the product. Yeah. Because uh, especially if you start the way we started where it's, you know, you start by yourself or with a small group of people and you grow over the years, it becomes an extension of you, right? And people, you know, a lot of times, you you know, even in discussions, people kind of pejoratively say, well, this is Alex's company or Michael's company, right? Because even though now it's actually a lot more than that. And as we've grown, it really has morphed. You know, we had other folks, great folks come in and actually take what we started and take it completely to the next level. And it's almost like an out-of-body experience. We actually watch, you know, mm. the seed that you planted grow and you can observe it from the outside. And, you know, we've, we've experienced that over the past couple of years as we've uh, kind of watched the next generation of folks yeah. that we've developed kind of take up that mantle and, and run with it. Hey, sexy ladies and gentlemen. That was part one to our two-part conversation with our guest. Arguably, the second half is actually better than the first, so I suggest you go and listen to that. 
Also, before you go, I want to ask you for one small favor. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please help grow the show with me by either one, reviewing on Apple Podcasts, or two, subscribing to the show. To give you a little background to why those two, it's because both have a material effect in growing the ranking of the show in podcast categories through the iTunes podcast ranking system, similar to how Google search ranks and organizes top sites for a specific search. To sweeten the deal, we're going to do something a little special. If you review the show on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to enter you into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's simple. Review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that little purple podcast app on your phone. Scroll to the bottom of the show and hit add review. 10 words, 10 seconds, very easy. You'll be entered into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's free money, y'all. You got to love that. If you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be freaking amazing. Thank you. Take care and good night.